Good morning and uh, happy Easter to you. And if you happen to be in one of our overflow rooms, thank you so much for being here and worshiping with us. I have to tell you, after last year of preaching my Easter message to a camera and an empty room, it is so, so, so good to be here and worshiping with you and celebrating Easter uh, with my church family. I think most of us know that Easter is the story uh, of God rolling a stone away. And so today we're starting a brand new series called He's Still Rolling Stones. I, I think we know that that Sunday that the tomb was empty, that Jesus had been raised from the dead. And, and that truth, what we celebrate today, is the very foundation of our faith. It, it is the center of what it means to be a Christian. And without the resurrection, the whole thing falls apart. The whole system breaks down, and here's why. The greatest need that you and I have in life is a relationship with God. However, we are all born with this issue called sin, and that creates a barrier between us and God. God is a holy God and unable to be in the presence of sin, and because of our sin, there is nothing that we can do to reach God. We cannot be good enough. We cannot be religious enough. There is nothing that we can do to overcome the barrier that exists between us and God. And yet, that relationship with God is the greatest need that you and I have in life. And since we could do nothing about it, God in His grace and His mercy 2,000 years ago sent His Son Jesus into the world who lived a perfect life then went to the cross and on the cross took the punishment for my sin and for yours. But then three days later when he rose from the grave, that became the key to overcoming the barrier between us and God. And so what we could not accomplish on our own, God accomplished on our behalf. Where there was no way, God made a way. Where there was no hope, God gave us hope through Jesus Christ. Here's the great news. God is still in the stone rolling business. While that was the greatest stone that God ever rolled away, God is still about doing the impossible in our lives. And those things that we think are barriers, those things that we think can never change, God is still in the business of rolling those stones away and changing our lives which is what we will cover in this series. And so I hope, I hope, I hope you'll come back next week to hear about how God is still rolling stones today. Today we're going to look at that event, God's greatest stone rolling moment. If you've got a Bible with you, turn to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. Matthew tells the story of the birth and the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And just before the passage we are going to read, Matthew gives in great detail the account of the hours leading up to and including the crucifixion of Jesus. Uh, According to Matthew, it was about 9 o'clock that morning that Jesus was placed on the cross. He hung there for six hours. And then at 3 o'clock that afternoon, Jesus breathed his last breath. A Roman soldier who was standing there saw that Jesus had died, but just to be sure, he took a spear and he thrust it into the side of Jesus. The Romans would normally let those they had crucified just hang on the crosses 
and let their bodies rot away in public. However, the Jews did not want that. Their Sabbath began that evening, that Friday evening, and they did not want bodies hanging on crosses during their Sabbath. And so the Roman soldiers took the limp, lifeless body of Jesus down from the cross. And that's where our passage picks up. This is Matthew 27, beginning in verse 57. Here's what we read. As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. So here in Matthew's story, he introduces us to a character that previously in the life of Jesus had not been seen. In fact, there are four books of the Bible that tell the story of Jesus. We call them the Gospels. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They all tell the story of Jesus. And in all four Gospels, not one of them includes this character, Joseph, until this point that Jesus dies. And then at this moment, at the death of Jesus, all four Gospels introduce us to this man, Joseph. Now, according to Matthew and according to these other Gospel writers, there are a few things that we know about Joseph. The first is, is that Joseph was from Arimathea. Arimathea was a small town. It was so small, in fact, that scholars debate where exactly it was located. Most of the evidence is is that it was about 20 miles to the northwest of Jerusalem, but they're not really sure. Arimathea was just this tiny little community. The second thing about Joseph is that we know that he was a member of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the Jewish ruling body over Israel. Uh, The Sanhedrin was like a mix of the Supreme Court and the Congress and a church ruling body. Israel was a theocracy, meaning they did not have a wall of separation between the political life and the religious life. And so the Sanhedrin made decisions on virtually every aspect of Jewish life. Uh, There were 70 members of the Sanhedrin plus the high priest. They were all very well respected, very influential members of that society. And Joseph was a member of the Sanhedrin. The third thing we know is that Joseph was a very wealthy individual. Not only does Matthew say a wealthy man named Joseph got the body of Jesus, not only does he describe him as wealthy, but we know that he must have been wealthy because he had the ability to purchase a tomb located just outside the city gates of Jerusalem, which would have been prime real estate in that day. Everyone wanted to be buried close to the holy city. Every Jew wanted wanted to be buried as closely as possible to the temple, to the place where God himself resided. And so that tomb would have been a very expensive tomb, And Joseph apparently had the means to purchase that tomb. And then, fourthly, we know that Joseph was a follower of Christ. A fact that he kept secret 
from the other members of the Sanhedrin because they weren't exactly fans of Jesus. In fact, it was the Sanhedrin early on that Friday morning that voted to condemn Jesus to death. And according to historical accounts, there were two members of the Sanhedrin that voted to save the life of Jesus. One of those was Joseph of Arimathea. The other was an individual named Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Nicodemus was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was well-respected. He was very influential. But Nicodemus was also a follower of Christ. In the Gospel of John, we are introduced to Nicodemus early in the ministry of Jesus. In John chapter 3, Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night under the cover of darkness in a secret meeting because he did not want others to know that he was interested in Jesus. And he comes to Jesus at night and they have this deep theological discussion about God and about salvation and about what it means to be born again in life. And in that conversation, Jesus says these words that have become so well known to us and to Christians all around the world. In that discussion, Jesus said to Nicodemus, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but will have eternal life. Those words impacted Nicodemus in a big way, so much so that that he continued to follow Christ, and so much so that he, on that Friday morning, along with Joseph, was willing to stick his neck out and defend Jesus and to stand up and vote against condemning Jesus to death. However, when you read the story, you know that Joseph and Nicodemus were in the minority. And ultimately, the Sanhedrin orders the death of Jesus, and then they take Jesus, and they drag Jesus to the Roman governor's palace, to a man named Pilate. And the Jews had the right to condemn people to death, but they did not have the ability, the power to crucify individuals. And so they go to this Roman governor, Pilate, and they say, this man deserves death. Crucify Jesus. Pilate initially resisted. He saw clearly that Jesus had committed no crime, certainly no crime deserving crucifixion. And so Pilate pushes back, but The high priest was a very savvy and shrewd individual. And he knew exactly how to put pressure in just the right places and to get get Pilate to do what he wanted him to do. And so ultimately, Pilate orders the death of Jesus. There they have Jesus beaten, they have him stripped, they have him whipped. And then Jesus is ordered to carry his cross from the Roman governor's palace down a road just out the the city gates, outside the city gates of Jerusalem, into a hill called Calvary. And they placed Jesus on the cross, and there he hung for six hours, and there he died. There some Roman soldiers removed the body of Jesus. Now, at this point, there were a couple of issues with getting the body of Jesus buried. The first was a time issue. The Jewish Sabbath started on that Friday at 6 p.m. Jesus died at 3 p.m. They only had three hours to get the body of Jesus ready 
for burial because at 6 o'clock there was no going around a dead body. That was forbidden. And so they only had three hours to do this. And while it could be done, the clock was ticking and it was going to be hard. And here's why. Most Jewish individuals took very good care of preparing a deceased body for burial. They would take the body and they would thoroughly wash the body. And then they would rub oil and spices onto the body. And then they would carefully wrap the body in linen cloths. And then that body would be taken and would be placed inside a tomb. Not in a casket, not in the ground as we're accustomed to, but inside a tomb that was normally carved out of rock, perhaps in the side of a hill. Inside of that tomb, the body would be placed in a niche that was carved in the rock inside the tomb. These niches might be stacked on one another, sort of like bunk beds, or they might be long ways carved into the tomb so they would slide the body in that way. A couple of years ago, Katie and I had the chance to go to Israel, and while we were there, we got to visit a first century tomb that some believe was the tomb where Jesus was placed. Here's a picture that I took of the tomb. You can see you walk inside an outside entrance into a small room that's carved out of the rock. And then inside that room, there were several niches. In this one, the niches went long ways. Uh, This is where they would place the bodies. Now, you're probably thinking, well, if there are only two or three or four niches inside a tomb, that doesn't make sense. Think about a typical family, especially a typical family in that day. Think about when you read the Old Testament... Think about the family of Jacob and his 12 sons and all of their wives. I mean, how do they have enough room in these tombs for all these bodies of all these different family members? Here's how it would work. They would take the body, wash it, put spices and oils to keep the smell down. They would wrap it in linen cloths. They would place this body in a niche in the tomb, and then they would wait. And a year later, they would come back. And after a year, that was enough time for the flesh to decompose and all that would be left would be the bones. They would then take the bones of the deceased and they would place the bones in a box called an ossuary. About four feet long, two feet wide. The the bones would be placed inside the ossuary and then the ossuary would either be placed in the tomb or in the family home. Again, on that same trip to Israel, we got to see a tomb. This one was dated to the 3rd century, so a little bit later. You can see that it was a little more ornate with the stonework around it. But here you can see the niches, and you can see the ossuaries. This tomb was raided at some point by thieves who would commonly do that, trying to find jewels or other valuables that had been placed with with the uh, dead who were buried there. So this was the normal practice. Everyone expected on that Friday afternoon that this is what would happen with Jesus. They expected, take his body, wrap it in cloth, place it in a niche. A year later, they would come back, gather the bones of Jesus. Those bones would be placed in an ossuary, and then that ossuary would go wherever the family members wanted it to go. That was the expectation that day. And so to get the body of Jesus prepared for burial was tough. It was a challenge, but it was doable. The more complicated issue, the more difficult issue was not how to get his body prepared, but where to put his body. The family tomb of Jesus would have been in Nazareth if he had one. 
Nazareth was a long journey away. Where would they place the body of Jesus in just three hours? Where would they place this wrapped body of Jesus that day? That's where Joseph steps in. Joseph, according to Matthew and the other writers, had a lot of influence. Here was a guy who had power. Here was a guy who naturally had doors open to him because of his position in society. And so Joseph goes to the Roman governor, Pilate, directly and says to Pilate, give me the body of Jesus. Pilate agreed because Joseph was that influential. And so they retrieve the body of Jesus. Joseph gets the body and takes the body of Jesus and places the body of Jesus in his tomb that was located close by. In fact, John tells us the same story. And notice how John frames the story. John wrote, Later Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes to prepare the body of Jesus, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. So John gives us a little bit fuller picture, a little more context. There's Joseph of Arimathea, his friend Nicodemus, who voted along with him to save the life of Jesus, is there as well. Together they prepare the body of Jesus, and then nearby, close by, because they could not travel a long ways to find a tomb, was this tomb... And they take the body of Jesus and they place it in the tomb. Finally, problem solved. They've got the body prepared. They've got the body in the tomb. Great. Everything's done, right? Except I want you to notice something. Notice what John wrote. That this was not just any tomb, but this was a new tomb. In fact, John emphasizes it more by saying it was a tomb in which no one had ever been laid. In Matthew, in the story we read earlier, Matthew emphasizes the same point. Matthew wrote that Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. Luke emphasizes the same point as well. Luke said, Then he took the body of Jesus down, wrapped it in linen cloth, and placed it in a tomb cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. This, these passages tell us that this was not Joseph's family tomb that was located close by. In fact, if Joseph had a family tomb, it would have been in Arimathea. This was not some old family tomb. This was Joseph's brand new tomb. This tomb still had the new tomb smell. This tomb still had paint on the walls that had not quite dried. The local tomb inspector had only recently given the certificate of occupancy for this tomb. This was Joseph's 
brand new tune. Why is it that they highlight this particular fact? Why is it that they make it so clear that Joseph was giving a new tomb for the body of Jesus to be placed in? Here's why. Jews back then and Orthodox Jews today did not and do not like mixing things of different kinds together. There are several Old Testament prohibitions against mixing things of different kinds in the same area. Now, Leviticus 19 commands the Jews not to plant two different types of seeds in the same field. Now, they're not to make a garment that is woven out of two different kinds of material. Uh, there's another verse that seems to indicate that they are not supposed to mix dairy and beef together. I'm not sure why, but they're not supposed to mix dairy and beef. And, and when we were in Israel, we saw this firsthand. In Jerusalem, we went to a hamburger restaurant that had very good hamburgers, but you could not get a cheeseburger. No dairy and beef mixed together. In fact, we had a friend on that trip with us who went to an ice cream store next door. Then he wanted to come into the hamburger place and sit with us and eat his ice cream while we ate our hamburgers. And he was met at the door by one of the employees who said, no, this is a kosher restaurant. You cannot bring dairy in here where we're serving beef. They don't like mixing different elements together, including different families in the same tomb. Throughout the Old Testament, wherever there was a family member who died, they were buried in the family tomb. You did not loan out a niche in your tomb to a co-worker who didn't have their own tomb. You didn't let a friend who had yet to construct their own tomb, borrow your tomb. You, you didn't let a neighbor who needed a tomb just for a year borrow your tomb. A family member was the only one who you could put in your family tomb. They did not mix family members together. Which meant that when Joseph gave to Jesus his brand new, very expensive, recently carved tomb, he was giving it up forever. Joseph was essentially taking the deed of his tomb and handing it over to Mary and the brothers of Jesus. In the future, only Mary and the family members of Jesus could be buried in that tomb. Joseph of Arimathea and his family could not be buried in that tomb. I imagine the next day after that Friday, on that Saturday, that Joseph went to the Acme Tomb Carvers Incorporated there in Jerusalem, and he said to them, I need you to carve me another tomb. And the contractor would have said, what? Time out, Joseph. Wait a second. We just finished carving a tomb for you. What do you mean you need us to build a new tomb? What's wrong with the one we just made for you. You paid a lot of money for that tomb. Why do you want a new tomb? And he would say, no, you don't understand. That tomb's fine. In fact, I want you to construct a tomb just like that tomb. However, I had to give that tomb away. I don't know if you heard about the events of yesterday, about Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified and who died and who he buried yesterday. I don't know if you heard about all that. But listen, Mr. Contractor, I believed that he was the one I believe that he was sent by God. 
I believe that he was the Messiah, the anticipated Jewish Messiah who had come to save us. In fact, Mr. Contractor, I saw him perform miracles. I I saw him heal individuals. I heard him teach like no one has ever taught before. And I was convinced deep inside my soul that he was in fact the one. Mr. Contractor, I, I guess I was wrong. Even though I was so convinced that I stuck my neck out for him and voted for him against the Sanhedrin, I guess I was wrong. Because Mr. Contractor, they put him on a cross yesterday. And there on that cross, the Messiah died. And they took him down from the cross. And I placed him in that brand new tomb. So, Mr. Contractor, as soon as the Sabbath is over tomorrow, I need to get you to get your crew working on building me a new tomb. I gave mine to Jesus. All four gospel writers tell us that on that Sunday morning, that three women were the first to come to the tomb of Jesus. On Saturday, they could not go and visit Jesus. On Saturday, it was the Sabbath going around. Dead bodies on the Sabbath was forbidden. But at first light on that Sunday, they made their way to the tomb. Two of these women were named Mary. One was named Salmon. They make their way to the tomb, coming to visit Jesus. And they get to the tomb, and they discover that the stone of the tomb had been rolled away, and there on top of the stone sat an angel. And the angel looked at them and said, Hey, look inside, check it out. Guess what? The tomb is empty. He is risen from the dead. And here's what you need to do. Go and tell his disciples that Jesus is not dead, that Jesus is alive. The women rush off, and here's what Matthew says happened next. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, where there they will see me. And according to the gospel writers, that's exactly what the women did. They went and they found the disciples of Jesus and they said, The tomb is empty. The stone has been rolled away. Jesus is no longer dead. We have seen him. He is alive. And my guess is that at some point, the news of what had happened reached the ears of Joseph of Arimathea. And he had to go for himself. And so he raced to his brand new tomb. And there he looked and for himself he saw it. The stone had been rolled away. He looked inside the tomb and the tomb was empty. My guess is his next move from there was to go to the Acme Jerusalem uh, Tomb Carvers Incorporated headquarters and to walk inside and to say to the contractor, never mind. You know what I told you yesterday? Never mind. Forget the whole thing. Take the contract that I signed yesterday and tear it up. I don't need you to build me A brand new tomb. You see, Mr. Contractor, I know that I told you that on Friday I gave my tomb to Jesus. But Mr. Contractor, here's what you need to know. On Sunday, today, I got it back. 
Mr. Contractor, I know that I told you that on Friday that I gave my tomb to Jesus, but Mr. Contractor, here's what you need to know. He just needed to borrow it for a few days. Here's what you need to know, Mr. Contractor. On Friday, I thought I was giving up my tomb forever, but guess what? I got it back. Because Jesus is now alive. Jesus has been raised from the dead. And yeah, I thought I was making a huge sacrifice, giving him my new tomb. I thought I was giving something up. But guess what, Mr. Contractor? Not only did I get my tomb back, but I got my tomb back and so much more. Because he only needed to borrow that tomb, Mr. Contractor, not only do I get that tomb back, I get eternal life as well. You see... Because he only needed it for a few days. Not only do I get my tomb back, I get salvation as well. You see, Mr. Contractor, because the stone was rolled away this morning, not only do I get my tomb back, I get a relationship with God as well. I thought I was giving God something. I thought I was giving Jesus something. But I got back far more than I ever gave. Here's what I love about this story. God is still in the stone rolling business. If God could roll away the stone of physical and spiritual death 2,000 years ago, then He can roll away stones in your life. Those things that you think are impossible, those things that you think will never change, those barriers that you think you will never be able to get through, that there is no path forward, our God is more than able to roll those stones away in your life and to make a way for you. So here's what you need to do. Whatever it is, whatever you're facing, whatever that problem is, whatever that temptation is, whatever that issue is, take it all and give it to Jesus. Like Joseph, just give it to Jesus. Take all those emotions and all those plans and all those thoughts and give it to Jesus. And then here's what you do. Just wait. Just wait on God. Because it might be Friday now, and things might seem dark now, and things might seem hopeless now. It might be Friday in your life right now, but listen to me. Sunday is coming. Sunday is coming. There may be a few of you who don't believe me. You may think that you're destined to live in Friday forever. You may think that God can never change your situation. That it's just too hard, that it's just too difficult, that it's too impossible in your life for God to really make a difference. And maybe you doubt me. Maybe you just don't believe me. If that's the case, then here's what I want you to do. Just go and ask the stone that was rolled at the tomb in the garden. What happens when God says to move?
Just ask the story. 